Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm Frances McGarry, the host of First Online with Friends, There's No Place Like Art, and budding author of From Their Voices, an anecdotal story of Young Playwrights, Inc.'s program to nurture the art of playwriting through a one-of-a-kind write-a-play curriculum. Bette Midler, Betty White, Sophia Loren, Helen Mirren, Judy Dench, Frances McDormand, Tina Turner, Whoopi Goldberg. These are some of my favorite role models of women of a certain age. My guest today, an award-winning, best-selling author of women's fiction, Jeannie Moon, has always been a romantic. I vicariously met Jeannie reading a Newsday article that featured her latest novel, Christmas in Angel Harbor, and its setting is inspired by my hometown, Northport Village. And when I read the book, I was struck by how the main character, Jane Fallon, a woman of a certain age, could not only be a woman of independence, but also a woman who falls in love. Welcome, Jeannie. Hi, Fran. Thanks for having me. Christmas in Angel Harbor takes a hard look at life changes. How does your latest book challenge the notion of quote unquote seasoned romance, ageism, and its impact on the business of romance novels? That's a heavy lift there with that question, but it really is very layered. The ageism in the industry went back, I mean, for generations, really. We always wanted that beautiful, young, innocent heroine who was going to be swept off her feet. And um, over the years, as women changed, so did the books that they read. And romance is the most popular genre of fiction. It sells over a billion dollars a year. Romance readers are voracious, often reading four or five, six books a week sometimes. And as they changed, so the heroines had to change with them. We went from the era of the hero to the shiro, really. And Jane is that for herself. You know, she's had some bumps in the road, but she didn't let that deter her from making a life for herself. And I think that really reflects so many of us who have gone through, you know, decades of our lives and everything didn't always work out the way we thought it was going to. But that doesn't mean that it didn't work out. It just means that we were able to pivot and redirect and still make a life for ourselves that we could enjoy and have those wonderful experiences, have children, fall in love, fall in love sometimes more than once if circumstances surrounded it. I just think that a seasoned romance brings a new level to the romance novel industry itself. Did you think in our age have more buying power? So yeah, yeah, exactly. And women are rising to the occasion, you know, during this pandemic and proving we can all reinvent ourselves. Mm -hmm. Did you face any kind of resistance about creating this woman of a certain age? Initially, yes. Um, Not particularly Jane's story, but other books that 
I've wanted to write. There was one book I wrote, one of my first ones. It was uh, my heroine was 40, which now I look at that and go, spring chicken, you know, it's like it's nothing. I got a lot of pushback in traditional publishing. Ultimately, I found a home with a small boutique press, Thule Publishing, which is who I write for now. And actually, Christmas in Angel Harbor, my publisher came to me and said, do you want to take a crack at this? She said, I think you have an audience and I think you've created enough of a a buzz about this particular category in romance that I think we could get somewhere with it. So I didn't really have pushback on this particular book, but others I have. I've been told, oh, nobody wants to read about older women. All the fun is out of it. You know, one person actually said, well, who wants to read about granny sex? And I'm going, still only 50. Come on. It's unfair. It maligns women. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that for some reason, they think that if we pass childbearing age, we're no longer desirable or have emotions or feeling. Judy Dench made a comment, something about what you were talking about. And she mentioned something about detesting the fact that she's described as a national treasure. And she said, for one thing, it's a terrible label. So dusty, so dreary. For another, it relegates me to being an 86-year-old woman, whereas in my mind's eye, I'm 61 plus and and willowy and and about 39. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that. It's true. You know, it's that whole for your age thing. Oh, you look wonderful for your age. You look and what you the know, hell is that supposed to mean? Yeah, it's just it's yeah, a way of, of it's an insult, honestly, as far as I'm concerned. Talk about synchronicity. In uh, Newsday, there was an Act Two article about these two women who wanted a platform to reach more women with their message of empowerment. Mm-hmm. And they just started up a, a podcast. This is what we do. I love what she said. They call it, I'm ma'am as hell. <laughs> you know, and resenting the fact that it's like, ma'am? What, what the hell is that coming from, ma'am? And uh, your character d- has to cope with that like, oh my God, here I am going to lose my business. This guy that I knew from high school pops back into to my life. And how am I going to deal with it? Is there any parallel uh, with your characters to your own life? We are Long Island girls. Yeah. We're neighbors. The, the parallel is that I've had to pivot a couple of times. I've been married for 32 years and I actually married my high school sweetheart. So I guess the whole idea of, well, what if we hadn't gotten married and he came back into my life years later? There's always that that I could draw on. You know, the idea that, you know, her daughter's going to be leaving and the daughter's the center of her life. Her daughter's going away to college. So the roles that she's established for herself, not just as a business owner, but as a mother, as being single, you know, all of these different things are challenged all at once. And I think really that's where we see Jane's strength is she not only figures out a way to step back and say, look, my daughter has to step away to grow whatever she decides to do. And that's what we do as mothers, that my business could possibly fail, but I'll figure it out. And then about the guy, it's like she allows herself to embrace it So she's willing to take a risk. And I think that 
what I've learned to do, and if I see a parallel anywhere, it's that I've learned to take chances. I've learned to take risks as I've gotten older, whereas I might have played it safe when I was younger. I also realize now that I don't have the same stretch of time in front of me that I used to. And it's not that I feel like I'm going to die tomorrow, but I also know that it's finite. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that for Jane is she's able to step back and take a look at things. She's also not as cut and dry at the the point where there's a crisis in their relationship. She's able to kind of circle back and go, she's able to look at intent. She's able to look at the bigger picture rather than just say, oh, he's an asshole and I don't want to talk to him anymore. Because for her, she missed a chance once and she's not going to miss it again. That was something that struck me because I was a teacher for 30 years. I taught theater and English, and I'm involved in a workshop. It's called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Mm-hmm. And in one of the week's chapters, they talked about being a shadow artist and how I vicariously lived my artistic abilities by moving the work of my students ahead. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I left that and then I, I moved on to working with Young Playwright Festival in New York City as its director of instruction. And then when that happened, it's like, okay, do I retire? And my husband literally did a spit take from across the kitchen table that's, no, I don't think that's going to happen for you. And here I am at this woman of a certain age, a working actor. I got my SAG card and I booked my first Hallmark movie. (laughs) Oh, that movie. It was awesome. (laughs) One World Holiday. And now, uh, which is another reason why I'm so eager to talk to you, because of the pandemic, I've used the time to be introspective. And like what you talked about, you know, what you said, it's like, okay, like Jane, it's like, I'm at this crossroads here. And I'm going to have to go in a couple of different directions and, and take a risk. I'm writing a book. Mm, that's, exciting. That's, what, that's what I wanted to start with. It's like, okay, I have to call myself an author. Yes. I'm an author. I have an arc. I wrote the, the chapters, you know, more anecdotal. And I'm going to having people who are going to be reading it and giving me fat. But two things is one is. As an emerging author, I mean, I wrote a dissertation, but that's a whole different. Let's not even go there. (laughs) That's a whole scholarship. This is really about finding the voices that we tapped into. And I want to get them to talk about that experience and how it changed their lives. So I have two questions to you. One is what kind of tips can you offer? Like what kind of strategies do you use? You know, you get this idea And it's like, okay, do you have a process? Do you have a strategy? And my second question to you is finding that community. That was the other thing that struck me about the book is that Jane had a community and they were there for her. Yes. So what is the arc of your taking risks? I mean, you're a teacher too. You're you're a librarian. Yes. How do you, how'd you do that? A lot of late nights in the beginning because I started writing when my kids were younger. I think my oldest was 12 
when I first started writing and I was, I was in an elementary school library. We started later and I was a lot younger. So I just stayed up till all hours. And I got up later. My husband was great. He would get the kids off and then I would be able to get up and get myself ready and still get to work on time. But I didn't have to be at work sometimes until like 9.15, right? I'm a nocturnal writer. I do my best writing between 11 at night at three in the morning. So I was around in the afternoon. I was writing at night. It was like this very weird kind of relationship I was developing with the characters that was all mine. And it was this really cool experience. And I just wrote. I had no instruction. I knew nothing. I was just a, I was a reader. I was a romance reader. And the first book was a nightmare. I will just tell you, it went out. It never got accepted. It needed major overhauls, but it was a learning experience. And through that, I found Romance Writers of America, which is a writing organization that's international, really. And it supports not just published, but unpublished romance, women who want to write romance, men who want to write romance. Through that, I found a local chapter. And that was really my tribe, if you will. I got to find people who were writers and they offered classes and guidance and people who were published and kind of nurtured me along. I did take a hiatus and I had a a bad car accident in 2005 and I had to take a break from writing mostly because I couldn't sit in a chair for a long period of time. I got out of the car under my own power. I was very, very lucky, but it doesn't mean that I wasn't hurt. So it took a little bit, but I got back into it in 2010 and then it was just full speed ahead. And again, the community was there for me. My writer friends and my teacher friends, my the administrators at my school were very supportive. And when I first got published, everybody was just happy for me. So I've been very well supported between my family, my children, my my friends at work, my writer community. But it takes effort because this is a very solitary job. So finding a community takes work. I think naturally, a lot of times writers are very introverted. Um, And it doesn't mean that we're shy. It just means that we relish our quiet time. I have to go out of my comfort zone sometimes because I do have a little bit of a hermit in me. It's like I can be very comfortable burrowing into my office and just doing my thing. The other thing is that I think it's just a question of if you, you just have to keep going. I didn't get a contract for 12 years. And It just took me a long, long time, but it was something, it was important to me. I don't know where I got this from, but I don't give up. I don't know what it is. It's just part of my personality. And I get knocked down. It's like, oh, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to do this. And then the next thing you know about it is I'm back and like I'm doing it again because I can't stop. There's that passion. I can relate to that. Yeah. It's something that's in me. And I, I just keep at it. And, you know, I get frustrated with things now. I'm working on a story now. And, and I'm like, oh, this is just, I, I just have to pack it in. Maybe I just can't do this and all this. And, and then my friend goes, right, sure. You're really going to do that. And they know me. They know I'm not going to. Because the next day I'm back and I'm just excited about what I'm doing. But at this point, my process has changed a bit. It used to be I just used to write by the seat of my pants and get the story out. Now I'm a little more careful with my plotting. And it's not that I plot every little point from beginning to end. I tend to flesh out my characters really, really well so I know them. I have major plot points along the way. And then I sit down and then I know where I have to go with those characters. And a lot of times they kind of take me there. It's pretty odd, but it's, that's pretty much what happens. Is it a, a, are romance novels formulaic? Sometimes. I mean, every genre has its formula. 
because every genre has expectations. Mysteries, you want to know who the who done it. Thriller, you have a certain element of violence and excitement and twists and turns. If you have a suspense story or horror, science fiction, fantasy. So every genre has its expectations. So the big expectation in a romance is that we have either the happily ever after or the happily for now. So the happily for now means that the characters are together at the end, that there's a mutually satisfying emotional ending. But other than that, how you get them there is really up to the author. The expectation is that you're going to take them on this roller coaster journey that ultimately shows us that love always wins. And that's pretty much the formula. But again, like a, a mystery writer who has to weave you through the story, the goal at the end of that cozy mystery, you know, that murder she wrote, is that the murderer will be found, good will triumph over evil, and if you ever gave somebody who picked up a cozy mystery a book where the whodunit wasn't solved, they would throw that book across the room because they have an expectation. The same is with romance readers. So you can have love stories that don't have happily ever afters, but if you want to say it's a romance and it falls into the genre, then you better have those characters together at the end. Yeah, fleshing out the characters. That's got to be a real talent. But it's very much like playwriting, is that you're giving voice um, to these characters and giving the character character. Yes. And when you're writing, um, do you think about using a character as a device to speak to your audiences in terms of, I don't know, teaching them a lesson or raising awareness? Yes, I do it unconsciously. It was funny. I had somebody who wrote me once about a book I wrote called The Wedding Secret. And it was a very traditional like romance. It came out from Penguin Random House fun book, fun to write, but there was a secret baby, you know? So it was a great trope that it wasn't the, like the baby was secret for long, but you know, I love a good secret baby trope. And she wrote to me cause she said, you had your, your main character. She said, breastfeeding, nursing her baby. And I was like, well, yeah. She said, you just made it so normal. She said, and so often we don't see it normalized. And I didn't think anything of it. I just figured, well, Harper's going to feed her baby. It's just what's done. And as it turns out, I wasn't able to nurse when I was, when I had children, but I knew that for whatever reason, this was the right thing to do. And I didn't realize I was speaking to it. I got that letter. I got another, I got so many letters from women who thanked me for saying, you just normalized it. It was just, this is the way it is. He accepted it. This is what she did. And it was no question. So I guess deep down my, my beliefs and my, what I believe in and what I see as my view of the world, I guess it does come through. We yeah. live in a beautiful place and, and it's not just about our exits on the LIE and it's not just about traffic and high taxes. I think we have so much more here and that's what I've been trying to put out there. And people are constantly now going, I want to come see where you live. I want to visit this place. So. Yeah, we are a product of our upbringing and you mentioned to me and we share this quality. I was extremely shy growing up and, and I was brought up children are to be seen and not heard. So it took me a while 
to rebel against that upbringing. And, you know, like you mentioned, surround myself with a tribe of people who valued my voice, valued what I, what I had to say. How was your upbringing uh, impacted who you are today and how you bring that to your family, to your children and to job as a librarian? I always wanted to be a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My mother was tough though, but my mother was a product of her environment. They used to call my grandmother the Duchess of Ridgewood. From, she was from Queens and they were one of those families that still did very well during the depression. They had a beautiful house and everything they wanted. So there was a, a almost a patrician quality there. And my mother was a, a bit of a snob, <laughs> I will say. But she was a very good teacher and, and she set that example. My father, however, came from a very, very, very big Italian family. And honestly, they were the ones who, those were the people, they affected me. I mean, I love my cousins on my mom's side. They're wonderful. I have four cousins, all women. We're all around the same age and they're just these amazing women and I adore them. My father's Italian family, though, was local. They were like a block away and we were all close. Yeah. And, and he was the youngest of 13 kids. And I had 41 cousins just on that side of the family. And so it was it was just a, a real amalgam. My one aunt would bake all the time. So all of that kind of got rolled into some of my stories, that feeling of community. And I not only had the fact that my father was a music teacher in town, he was um, a guitar teacher and everybody knew who he was everybody. And they were all in my house on Westick Road. And, and that was it. So I couldn't go anywhere without somebody. I never got in trouble because everybody knew who I was. Yeah. Here. I was, I was one of 10, but I could not get away with anything. Nothing. And it was nothing. It was awful. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. awful. Yeah. yeah. So I was definitely inside this little bubble for a long time until I went to college and I could reinvent myself. I was very shy. I was uh, very much inside my own head. I wrote stories when I was in high school and people used to borrow them in the lunchroom. I had like a binder of short stories, all romances, and people would come along and say, do you have a new one? And they borrow it. And then the librarian came in because I actually had a circulation system going. Yeah. I remember that I so identify with what you're talking about because I wrote all the time. I had journals all through elementary school. And I'll never forget my sixth grade teacher, we were doing some kind of writing exercise. And everybody in the class said, let's save Francis's story for last. What a validating thing. But what happened was, when I went to seventh grade, Miss Frankamont changed the way my attitude, I was just, like you said, I just love to write, but it's like, no, you, you know, this is how you develop an essay. You start with a thesis and it just kind of killed it. The joy out. You have to be careful with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, you were an English teacher, you know. Yeah. Yes. And I, I didn't, I made sure I didn't want to do that to my students, but as a librarian, you know, has the love of reading with all of this, oh my gosh, all of this stuff that's going on. How has it impacted how kids read and their love of reading? When I was in an elementary school, and I went from teaching high school English to elementary library. My first day as an elementary librarian, I taught only kindergartners after teaching seniors only for five years. And then I had five-year-olds. 
And I had my first day, I had three kindergarten classes. I went home, I looked at my husband, I said, what the hell did I get into? They were amazing because they were these little sponges and all they wanted was books and they wanted more books and more books and more books. And so the elementary kids were great in that way. And then I moved back up to high school and somewhere between fifth grade and ninth grade, they lose it. Yep. And I don't know if it's a combination of the workload, the social piece, the distraction of just life and growing up and hormones cooking and everything else that goes on with them, that they lose it. And so I work to bring that back with them. I don't have, I still do reader's advisory. I still have kids that want to read, but it's definitely not what it used to be. Mostly what I teach now is I teach research. I, I, I'm heavy, heavy, heavy into research with the kids, but I still get a chance to plug books and push books. And over the pandemic, I did have more requests, but the problem was that we didn't have a lot available digitally. So when we were remote, I was trying to find ways to get the kids library cards and for the public library so they could borrow and things like that. So we did do that. It's just constantly pulling things out of our bag of tricks to keep things afloat right now. It can't be easy. And that's the point. Nothing is easy. No, during it's this not. But, you know, we pandemic. keep trying, we keep plugging because we know we want to just keep trying to do what's best for the kids. And that's really why I'm in the game. I mean, yeah, I'm going to retire in a couple of years, mostly because I, I'm tired of the grind of getting up at 5.15 in the morning <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. But I like my work. I still like my work. I still feel I'm effective. I, the kids are, are, for the most part, I mean, there are always some kids that you'll look at and you go, really? Do you <laughs> really want to make that decision? But most of them are great. And I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm in a, an environment where I really love my colleagues. There's not one teacher in my district that I wouldn't want my kids. Oh, to. everybody loves the school library. And you're like... <laughs> You're the librarians are celebrities in and of themselves. Jobs make your life easier. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of which, are you seen as a celebrity? Do the kids know that you're published? The kids all know. Yeah, the kids know. Initially, my one principal was a little hesitant about kind of letting my secret identity out, but they found out anyway. So we kind of decided that it was silly to keep it a secret. I wasn't doing anything bad. You know, I wasn't doing anything wrong or illegal or anything like that. So eventually it gets kind of got out there and the teachers would say, well, you know, Mrs. Cliphouse, she writes books. And they were like, really? That's so cool. So some of the kids come in and they, they'll say to me, do you really, like, you really a novelist? And I was like, yeah. And then if they give me attitude, they'll go, well, like, what do you, why do you think you can tell me this? Like, when was the last time you signed an autograph? I was like, <laughs> it was yesterday for me. So go away. <laughs> Now go sit down. And so we tease. But for the most part, the kids are great. They think it's very cool. Teachers in and of themselves are role models. And it always astounds me. 30, 40 years later, I have these students who are now in their 50s are like, I will never forget when we did you know, whatever lesson I was in the class. And I think it was because I always think about Miss Frankamont. And... and <laughs> And what she did. And it's like, I don't want to do that. I want to try. But now I find myself being Miss Frankamont to me. You know, how do you. How do you get you past get, that feeling? Yeah. Everything yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, take comfort in the fact that you're not alone. You're not. We all look at our work at some point and go, 
I, you know, I, I vacillate between, wow, I wrote this and I wrote this. <laughs> you know, it's like, it goes between, it goes between the two, you know, it's normal. It's a classic artist thing. The imposter syndrome, that feeling like they're going to find out that I'm a fake. Yeah. And <laughs> this is the book. They're going to find out that I really can't do this. And I think it's just, you fight against it. You fight against it every day and you try to reach down and realize that ultimately you're writing this for yourself to, to expose your own heart, to bring something else, something beautiful out into the world. And then if people get something from that, it's wonderful. So try not to let it bog you down, but I will tell you, you're in really good company. And a friend of mine said, if I'm not doubting, I'm not working hard enough. So I think it's a function of who we are and we always want to get better. And I think that's a function of who you are as well. It's probably part of your teacher persona that, that brings in that you always want to see progress. You always want to improve. And this is new for you. So it's totally out of your wheelhouse. It's understandable. Yeah. Recently, I, I was going through that drought last time we talked. Mm-hmm. It was so nice to hear somebody say, it's okay. And we're not going to use that writer's block term. That's like an ax where you're just chopping off your head. I'm just in a drought. There, The ideas are still there in the head. They're still floating around. And I don't know if you remember, the last time we talked was January 6th. Yeah, it was. And I hung up and I'm like, what is going my world inside out? But as a result of that, of talking with you, watching the insurrection of the Capitol, I was like, I have to write this down. And what I did was to express what I did. I'm like, okay. Let's say I have to go to class tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What am I going to teach? Yes. And I created a five-week playwriting lesson. And it incorporated all of my previous chapters. So I have the culminating chapter. There it is. In my book. And it was just so, so exciting. I believe that art is is a means to raise awareness, to heal our nation, to have people stand in the shoes of somebody else and Mm -hmm. feel that we have such hatred and violence that's going on around us. And hopefully that will change. No, it will. It will change. We have to. It's going to take time, though. Does any of of this political activism or the, the climate, the environment, any of that influence what you want to write about? Yeah, not, I will say not really. I write about relationships and I write about the ability of love to heal. And for me, it's escapist. I provide people with a vacation. I do. I give them a chance to escape for a few hours, to um, live vicariously through somebody else, to feel things, to capture the emotion. If somebody says to me, I cried, I cried when this happened in this book. I cried when something happened with Kate and until you, and and it was the same as something I experienced. And so I give them an escape. A friend of mine did a poll, an informal poll and said, should we put the pandemic in our books? And something like 700 of her readers who replied out of 800 said, no. And it's because they said, I read to escape. I read romance to escape. 
And we call the genre the literature of hope because we like to see that it's not just about that happily ever after. It's about giving a hopeful, optimistic view of how things can go. It doesn't mean everything's always perfect, but it means that, you know, that idea that love always wins, you know, it's, if you have that in your life, you will find a way. And so you shouldn't shut it out if you have the opportunity. When you were talking about writer's block, I was thinking about it and and somebody said to me, how do you get through it? And I go, honestly, I just kind of let everything cook. Just because I'm not writing doesn't mean I'm not writing. You know, just because you're not physically putting words down doesn't mean that it's not stirring up in your head. It's it's like it's like per, it's yeah. percolating. My husband saw me. I was cleaning the closet out and all that kind of stuff. And he goes, oh, you know, you're not <laughs> you really have to write this next chapter. But it's therapeutic. Yeah, it is. It is. The, the, and there's things going on in the head. And you're going to put that pen to paper. You know, like for me, it was after the probably the most disastrous day in the history of the United States. And here I am realizing, oh, my God, I can use this as a way to show all of the playwriting exercises and and whether it happens or not. I loved what you said, that it's a literature of hope and love always wins. And in fact, really, it's not escape so much as what your work does is it taps into our humanity. It taps into our hearts. It taps into reminding us that love does always win. And we need that love more now than ever. I kind of hear that song, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Yes. It's really the answer to everything. And you are my answer today. Oh, thank <laughs> for- you. For brightening, uh, brightening the. It's a snowy day outside, and you've given me hope. And the fact that we write so much to share and so much to give of ourselves, and this is what impressed me so much about you and your work. And I'm looking forward to your next Hallmark movie. (laughs) And even better happens, you know. Even better if you could cast me in one of those roles. If I ruled the world, everything would be fine. (laughs) I always tell everybody. That's what I tell my kids all the time. And we will survive. Yes, We we will. We will rise. And it doesn't matter what age you are. You have an opportunity to rise to the occasion and be all that you can be. We all have infinite possibilities. We all have infinite possibilities. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Jeannie. I love you. And I wish you continued success. Thank you so much for having me. This was an absolute joy. Thank you. To learn more about Jeannie's work, visit my first online with Fran blog. She has website and social media, and you can get in touch with Jeannie just like I did and learn more about her work. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just to love. What the world needs now 
Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at We Chief Studio Productions.